From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. This morning, we speak first with Salt Lake resident and ultra runner Charlie McKee, who joins to talk about how she climbed, skied, ran, or hiked every named peak in Salt Lake County in 2023, over nine months and 21 days. And then David Windsor and I speak with Gnarly Nutrition. They join the show to talk about science-based nutrition, electrolytes, creatine, branched-chain amino acids, and more, and why more serious and not-so-serious athletes are using their products. That's coming up this hour on The Mountain Life. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Now, there are people who participate in the well-known races or events, you know, the Wasatch 100, the Park City Point to Point, and then there are other people who set other types of goals for themselves, perhaps less famous or sexy. Our next guest just wanted to explore her backyard on foot. Charlie McKee became the first person to tag the summit of every peak in her hometown of Salt Lake City. There are 178 total. The feat took her nine months and 21 days, and she joins now to tell us all about how she did it and why it became a goal for her. Charlie McKee, welcome to The Mountain Life. Hi, thanks for having me. We very often, if we're competitive or we like to participate in races or events, a lot of times we make them and turn them into a vacation and go a couple states away or you know, across the country or maybe even internationally. But you really had this idea of every peak in your hometown. Why was that? I think you just um, hit on it. It's very much I wanted to explore uh, what is very available to me without having to exhaust resources. Um, and I wanted to kind of force myself to pay attention to everything that maybe I wasn't already paying attention to when I go out for my regular trail run or for a ski tour or go rock climbing. There's just this entire playground, um, many world-renowned things about it, and I wanted to just make sure that I was doing myself a favor and seeing it all up close and personal and kind of sticking close to home and really appreciating the value of the place that I do call home. Um, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I like that idea. So often we don't know what's right behind us, or maybe we've never even met our neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering how, what constituted a peak? Because you say there were just under 100, 180 of them. How did, what was the qualifier? Yeah, that was a great question because a lot of this I had to kind of piecemeal together to create the ultimate map. Um, but I wanted to do everything that was known. Um, so most peaks have a name, there's the trail, there's some sort of demarcation that makes them a high point near something else. Um, and so I took a combination of ski maps, trail running maps, just boundary maps, hiking, hiking maps. And if it happened to appear on one of those maps, that was it. And I kind of meshed them all together to create one that I thought would be pretty much everything included. And so that ended up being 178. Um, and then the adventure really started. It was figuring out if these were possible. So anything that has a name, I was willing to at least explore it. Was this 
And, you know, from on a north to south, east to west trajectory, what was included there? Was it Salt Lake Valley? Was it only Wasatch? Was it the Ochre Mountains? Yeah, so the entire boundary of Salt Lake City County was kind of what I was able to narrow it down to. And that actually includes the Ochre Mountains. It includes the southern end near Draper. It includes pretty much everything in Wasatch around Salt Lake City up to the Crest Trail. That is the marker on the um, east side. And it goes up to City Creek. So I thought that was a pretty big range. I had to make sure that it would be possible because I truly wanted to do all of the Wasatch. Um, and I think that might have to be a few year goal um, because it's quite large. So I kind of wanted to keep it into my true backyard of Salt Lake. So everything that I can see from my house, from the grocery store, and really make sure that it was every inch of that playground. Out of curiosity, how many peaks were there in the Ochre Mountains? So actually, there's quite a few, and that was the majority of the private property because Kennecott Mine owns a lot. And so I was thwarted on many attempts to try to go to some of the smaller ones. But that one itself, if you included the private property, I think it boasts about 25, give or take a few, in the northern section. And so there's actually a southern section, and that is Kelsey Mountain, White Mountain area. Those are some of the pretty big ones I got to get right up next to them with the buttermilk peaks, um, but those are also part of the ochres. It's divided into two, which I didn't know until I started this project. Um, there's the northern range and the southern range, um, about 25 in Salt Lake. And I think if you were to do all of them, there's closer to like 40. Did you access those mountains from the west side, from the back side of them? Yes. So the other side in Tooele County is BLM. Um, there are some private property boundaries kind of sprinkled in. You can get up there to at least the ridge line um, where it borders private and public. And those are probably some of the most rugged trails of this entire project. But it was really fun to kind of finally have a reason to go there because I had looked at them for so many years, just wondering what the trail running was like, wondering what the skiing was like. And finally, I had my reason. So I was like, this is great. <laughs> Those have been on my list for so long. Well, nothing like creating a list. And many of us do this. You, you have a goal, something in mind that you want to do. But until you sort of quantify it or make a list or make a goal or, you know, say I'm going to do this much vertical or like you, this many peaks, we're going to leave a lot out, This, especially for a project like the Ochre Mountains. I love it. Well, I guess, what were the peaks that were the most challenging for you? And had you climbed those already before? Because I know people who are really into hiking and trail running, they've already done a lot of those difficult peaks. So there's a handful. Um, and so I would say difficulty in this project kind of became two categories. Difficult as in it was seldomly done. There's not really a trail. It was kind of a quest difficult. And then difficult by technicality. So something about it made it just a little bit more strenuous. So some of those peaks are very well known in the Wasatch for technicality. Um, the ridge lines between Big Cottonwood and Little Cottonwood, um, there's a famous route called the Whirl, which is 
kind of a horseshoe loop through Little Cottonwood Canyon, and it goes across this very technical terrain, about fifth class, scrambling in the vast majority of it. It's very slow moving, incredibly dangerous. I had not done a large portion of that prior to this project. It had been something I'd always wanted to do, but once you kind of get up onto the ridge line, you really are only able to move in one direction, um, time-wise, fuel-wise, water-wise, nothing is working in your favor. It's very exposed, so you kind of get up there and you got to keep going. So you have to invest a lot of time and planning into that particular ridge, those ridges and those roots. Um, so things like uh, Dromedary Peak, Jepson's Folly, O'Sullivan, Sunrise, the American Fork Twins, those are really the big ones. And so that was really inter or interesting. I had to work my way up kind of in my training to just make sure that I could actually get to a point where my body was able to handle like 10 hour days with very little water. Um, and I felt comfortable being in that technical terrain. I wasn't going to shut down because I was scared or kind of slow down too much because I was afraid of moving across certain sections. And then the other difficulty of the project was the very questing centered summits. And so these are ones like Black Mountain um, in the Northern section. That one I don't think has been visited by very many people at all. It's the actual summit of what is known Pop more popularly as Little Black Mountain, which has a trail, but then it fades out and you are on a ridgeline bushwhacking. It's, um, I think, more visited by archers in the fall. There's a big hunting area over there. Um, so there's very faint deer trails. There are occasionally some little clearings for footpaths, um, but for the most part, it is incredibly technical, very thick brush. I think those might have been truly some of the slowest miles of the entire project, walking through very, very thick oak brush, getting holes ripped into my shorts um, and not having any water. Uh, and those are just, you're committed to going to a very particular spot on your map. And it's a different kind of fun, different kind of hard, um, but all the same it's mostly a mental game when you get to those kinds of terrains, but I was very surprised to find a lot of enjoyment in both of them. And so I think for the most part, this project, if anyone were to ever kind of duplicate something of that matter, they would find the same set of difficulties, um, technicality, time, and then just absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining me on the mountain, I'm, I'm having a conversation with Charlie McKee. She took nine months and 21 days to climb, hike, run, ski. We'll ask that next. All of the peaks in her backyard, her backyard being Salt Lake County. Well, and I want to clarify this. So the peaks, are there were about 178 peaks, but you weren't able to access all of them. Or when there was private access, did you ever request and, and try to get access? Yeah, so most of the private property is not in the scope of being able to request access. Um, there are a few in the southern section. Um, I'll use this as an example. They're actually on a military outpost. Uh, and so yeah. 
you're not going there's there. No, yeah, there's there's no I grew up military too, so I'm very familiar the absurdity for them to be like, you want to just wander around our mountains above our military installation? Please don't do that. So I was thinking, okay, where are we going to make this something that is accessible in terms of a project for everybody? Um and so if it's private property, it required any kind of special access, I wasn't going to pursue that route. Although it'd be really lovely to have seen them all, all the different points of view on this project. Um, I want it to be truly public. Quite a few were, I guess, on the initial list, but just not really conducive to being a accessible summit. So you are an, an accomplished runner and sounds like you're a a climber, a rock climber as well. And I'm assuming that you are an active backcountry ski tour. You had to start this because you finished in October. So you started in the middle of a, a winter and it wasn't just any winter. It was the biggest winter that we've had in many decades. Yeah. So I actually had to start the project um, in January, and I was very excited for this. Most of the summits that don't really have a trail, I initially wanted to ski them because it would just be easier. And I say that with respect to the fact that you would already need to be able to ski them, but it would require less bushwhacking. It would be a lot more simple. So I started with some backcountry skiing focused mostly in Little Cottonwood area, ticking off some of those summits that didn't really have trails. And you get to explore some really um, amazing things. Uh, the Wasatch is very well known for its backcountry skiing. So uh, fortunately for me, a lot of that's already been mapped out. So it was just kind of taking what was existing and trying to do my best to duplicate it. Unfortunately for me, I ended up getting into a ski accident while I was out tagging one of the summits at the end of January, and I ended up breaking my fibula, and I had to self-rescue ski out of the canyon. And I missed the two best months of this like record ski season. So I had to kind of put the project on hold for at least two and a half months until I was recovered enough to at least go out for some little hikes and stuff. But by that time, all the good snow was gone and I was very disappointed. Um, but I think I managed 16 summits on skis in the month of January. Um, not as much as I wanted, but otherwise heinous if you had to do them in the summertime. What a story that you broke your leg. <laughs> Sounds like you, I mean, you're young and, you re and you're healthy and you recovered quickly to be able to even entertain the thought of finishing this project as you did. That's wild. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your running background. I know you're a, you're on the Solomon running team. So that's, you have to be pretty accomplished to do that. Yeah, so I think 2023 is my 10th year of running. Um, I grew up playing soccer and then went to college without soccer and had this void. Turns out uh, I was really just missing the running aspect of soccer. Um, went out for a short run um, when I was in college and that run turned into an eight miler. And I think very quickly I realized I was probably more inclined to endurance sports than I had ever thought. I bought a ton of books on it, um, just became obsessed, started trail running, met a, I met the trail community, which was really it. Um, that's 
usually what gets most people and then fell in love with it and moved to Salt Lake in 2016. That's when the door really opened. Um, I started exploring a lot of places. I would travel to Moab often, St. George, Zion. It just became this huge proponent of being able to go places that I had never experienced before. So a lot of my running was really focused on just exploring. Um, and that was such a fun endeavor. And then uh, I quickly learned that I was competitive, that soccer nature <laughs> really took over and would sign up for some races and then kind of found my own strengths throughout the sport. Um, and I really, I joked about this with a coach in the past, but I am the runner who enjoys the training more than I do the racing. Getting myself to be fit enough to do a race was never really an issue. I would always be really up for the challenge. I would do tons of ultra distance races is kind of my specialty. But yeah, it's been a really fun and rewarding sport to participate in. And then just being a woman in this sport now um, is probably one of the most rewarding aspects to it watching women take down some of these incredible things. Teammates of mine, uh, it's the most inspirational thing. It's probably something I hope to be part of for the rest of my life. You talked about a couple minutes ago, the Whirl, which is the Wasatch Ultimate Ridge Line, Ridge Link Up? Yeah. Right. And they did a, a really interesting documentary. I saw kind of the intricacies of what you go through when you do a, a race like the Whirl. And I know a lot of people just check those peaks off between Little and Big Cottonwood Canyons, as you say, in that they go in kind of a horseshoe fashion. But it's a, a big goal of people just to do one at a time, let alone all of them. And as you also said, it's quite dangerous. And when we say dangerous, it is some of the areas have sort of razor-like ridges. Yeah, yeah razor-like ridges, a lot of very loose um, boulders and talus that um, if you're not familiar with that terrain, uh, it could be like stepping on a small landmine. It could create movement, um, knock you off your feet. And then there's some vertical sections that you have to either climb up or descend. So being very comfortable on exposed dangerous terrain, there's quite a lot to that, those talus fields. Um, they're beautiful and majestic from the valley floor, but when you are on them, they can be pretty spooky. So you also have a day job. I mean, you just don't do this as your profession. And yet you mentioned a lot of the days would be like, 10-hour days, which I can absolutely imagine some of them may have even been longer. You kind of have to be a weekend warrior. Is that how you did it? Yeah, lots of big Saturdays. And I think the most difficult part was doing them back-to-back, -back, so Saturday and Sunday. And then, yeah, some of the long weekends, um, most people were at barbecues. I was <laughs> up in the mountains bushwhacking around. <laughs> so, yeah, taking advantage of every opportunity um evenings um early mornings for some of them mostly with the skiing ones a lot of those were very early mornings trying to work it in um i work a full-time job um luckily i work from home so it's a little bit easier but very much time was not on my uh side for this project but it was exciting to kind of have an obsession after work or before work every day how many of these summits did you do alone and how many did you do with others? I think I was very lucky to get about 
half of them with friends. So some of those were the more technical ones, obviously, um, just because it's very good to have a partner in that setting. Um, you, it's very dangerous. You really want to make sure that you have company. Most of the skiing were done with others, uh, partners, and that's just the nature of backcountry skiing. I think only one or two of those I did solo, um, but in very familiar terrain. So, um, and then there's a couple that were rock climbing. Those are mandatory. You need a partner. Um, for the most part, all of the bushwhacking ones were on my own. I couldn't convince friends to go bushwhack across a ridgeline or something for a couple hours. They were not into that idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep that Black Mountain on my list of uh, hikes that I don't need to do. And then what was your navigation device? Um, so typically I used my phone and there are a couple different apps that you can download. I typically used CalTopo and Strava actually has maps that you can download. Um, and so that means you have access to the map and your physical location will show up on it, um, even if you don't have cell service. So a lot of my route planning was done, obviously, preemptively, I would have relatively an idea of where I was going, if there was a trail, and if I had diverged from the trail, where it would begin, where it would end. Um, so typically I was using a combination of those two apps at any given point. Um, it's always good to kind of make sure that you're in the same spot on more than one, especially if you're in unfamiliar territory. Um, so those are pretty much my go-tos for the entirety. Um, and they proved to be very fruitful because I don't think I got lost a single time. Did you also have some sort of device that you could send out a message on, again, like a Garmin inReach? Yeah. So actually, if you have a newer version of your cell phone, it does have uh, a GPS notification that you can send out if you're in distress. Um, but I did have a cell phone. This is maybe just due to my personal experience. When I'm skiing, I have a beacon, um, but when I'm trail running, I like to do just the basic of letting someone know. So that's either a friend or a relative or my partner, let them know where I'm going to be that day and kind of my estimate of things. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised once you get high enough, you actually have a good amount of cell service. So I was able to kind of shoot off messages of updates along the way, just so people kind of were aware if I was making progress, if there was an issue. Um, so I wasn't super concerned about it. Um, and I'm also just very practiced and, um, disciplined when I get into terrain like that, because I do it so much. Um, I don't usually rely on having, um, help. So there's always a good kind of indicator of whether or not you should attempt something and it's whether or not you can get yourself out of it. Um, so having the skills, the um, wherewithal to figure out what to do if you're in a dangerous situation, how popular is the area you're going to go to, are you likely to encounter other people? Um, and then just generally, how can you account for yourself? Um, are you setting yourself up for success with supplies? Um, so do you have enough things if, if you're in danger? Um, do you know that there's going to be cell service? If there's not, then how are you preparing for that mentally? Um, you kind of have to look out for yourself in a lot of ways, but um, I don't like to rely on, you know, search and rescue because often if I was going to be in those sticky situations very far out, it's unlikely that, you know, you're putting other people's lives in danger. And obviously they're also trained professionals, but, um, you know, 
it's really on your own. Um, you got to figure it out on your yourself and rely on your own skills. So I caution anyone who wants to do something um, that's a little bit more dangerous, just really make sure that you check um, before you go kind of what everything you need, what's the potential weather, um, where are your water sources and how you're going to help yourself. Um, because those are kind of the big things you got to worry about first and foremost, before you go have an adventure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with all of that said, are, is there any one um, kind of crazy story that you'd like to share with our listeners about something that happened that you weren't expecting from, I don't know, wildlife to a sprained ankle? <laughs> you know, um, I wish I had a sprained ankle, but um, I, you know, you can break your ankle in a lot of places. Um so I think uh, wildlife, I was very fortunate. I saw quite a few remarkable things, but I think the coolest one I was able to encounter this year was um, a little black mountain, the one with the real trail. <laughs> um, I had that summit all to myself, albeit it's a pretty popular one for a lot of Salt Lake folks, um, but I was running back along the ridge about to descend the mountain and I almost stepped on a little cluster of birds um, and they were very small um, and one of them turned around and was kind of threatening me and uh, he was wiggling his butt and he was about the size of a baseball and I thought it was just the most adorable thing I've ever seen. Um, and I took a video because I had never seen a bird like that. It had eyes like the quintessential cute um, animals, these big round, adorable black eyes. And um, turns out it's a night hawk, which I had never seen before. And the males are pretty, um, I guess, aggressive. Uh, and so they are not, as a species of bird, they're not doing so great. And I think it's because they try to attack animals that are much larger than them. Um, but it was just this really surreal moment. Um, you know, I was anywhere from a foot to three feet away from it, trying to figure out how to get around this very tiny bird who was not willing to get off the trail. Um, and I think just in terms of nature, that was kind of one of the coolest experiences because, um, you know, there was no one else around. It was just me. And I got to just have this very up close and personal interaction with this new to me species of animal. Um, and I've encountered since then, you know, tons of rattlesnakes, but those are not new to me. You see them all the time around in the Wasatch. Um, but just having, I think, a, a bird encounter was very unexpected for me, especially one on the ground. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of things to be found in the Wasatch, especially in Salt Lake area. Um, so I encourage people to maybe venture out of their, you know, comfort zones a little bit, try a new trail. Um, there's definitely things that you are not exposing yourself to um, by doing the same trail often. And I say that as a creature of habit myself. Yeah, there's so many beautiful things out there. Um, it's rich with history too. What a great story. Wanted to ask you about how you're publishing this so that other people can maybe create their own sort of bucket list from your experience. Yeah, uh, so currently I have everything listed. Um, I GPS tracked everything and took tons of photos. So everything is documented on my website and that's charliemckee.com. 
But in the near future, I really hope to be able to produce an actual guidebook that has all the summer information and the winter information. So anyone who wants to access these summits, um, hopefully there'll be a place it's a lot easier for them to go to. But if you need a map right now or you want just the GPS data, you can go to my website and have all of it. Charlie McKee is my guest, and she summited all the peaks in Salt Lake County over nine months, 21 days, both on skis and running. Charlie, thanks so much for joining me on The Mountain Life. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. There's a science-based nutrition company based in Salt Lake City. It's called Gnarly Nutrition. Gnarly Nutrition exists to create the highest quality sports nutrition products for all levels of performance. Nutrition that helps push through the failure, amplify, amplify grit, and celebrate messy triumphs, as they say. Our guest, Shannon O'Grady, who's the chief science nerd, and John Perry, the head of marketing, are also now podcasters. They're hosts of the NAR Stool podcast. And that podcast aims to challenge the health industry, which we love. So many things out there that need to be challenged. Shannon and John, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks so much for having us, Lynn. Shannon, you call yourself the chief science nerd. You have a PhD in biology. I love the way that you talk about the things that we put in our bodies. I'd love to just get started with your products at Gnarly Nutrition electrolytes. There's so much misunderstanding around this. Do we all need to ingest electrolytes, even if we're not doing a 10-hour mountain bike ride? Yeah, this is a great question because it's generally uh, a misconception I think a lot of people have about when and how to supplement. 100% yes, actually, is my answer. Electrolytes in water actually help uh, our bodies better absorb water. You can also consume water with food, but water is absorbed passively into your body and it's also pushed actively. So having a little sodium and actually a little bit of sugar um, when you're consuming your water, if you're not taking it with food, actually helps your body better absorb that water and become more optimally hydrated. So if you're drinking water on its own, it could be you know, as easy as, of course, buying gnarly hydrate and adding a little bit to your water it could also look like adding a little bit of salt and a little bit of maple syrup to better absorb that. But if you're consuming your water with food, then you got it covered. Okay. Consuming your water with food. So let's talk about what really hydrates our gut, what's going on in our gut and all our systems, our colon and what hydrates it. And then what also sucks hydration away from it and I start to think of caffeine and coffee, and that may be, you know, a myth or not of dehydrating. I'm, I'm drinking my coffee right now, and actually that is a myth of dehydrating. So they've done studies where they've matched uh, liquid consumption with where they've looked at that liquid being coffee versus that liquid being other fluids, but the total amount of liquid was the same, and there was no difference in um, hydration or dehydration between the groups, showing you know coffee in and of itself is not a diuretic. Often when we consume coffee, right, it's cup after cup after cup. And so we do use the bathroom more. And I think that's often why people feel like maybe it is dehydrating. But in and of itself, um, that's a no. We do wanna watch how much we consume over the course of the day, but um, 
but that is not true. That it dehydrates us more. And I'm all about consuming water. As I mentioned throughout the day is primarily what you should be hydrating it, taking it with food, taking it with a little snack, um, with some electrolytes and, and uh, sugars to get your body to absorb it. Waters pass passively via what's called an osmotic gradient based on the concentration of things in your gut versus in your blood, but it can also be pushed into our bodies. And that is called active transport. And that's via something called the sodium glucose pump. It's like a little gateway that helps our body pull more water into it. And that's where having some electrolytes and sugars actually in the water activates that passive movement of water and that active movement of water. So get using both methods is going to better hydrate you um, over the course of the day. I'll be putting some sugar and sodium in my water right after this call for sure. The health industry in this country is so messed up, obviously. I mean, we're watching commercials for soda and chips and candy, and then the next commercials for a drug to get you healthy for that. And it's just this whole revolving cycle of of stupidity. There's a lot of fads going on. There's always new biohacking. There's all these new things. John, what is the biggest misconception that we're seeing right now in the health industry that you think is a trend heading in the wrong direction? In my experience and our experience, anything that is more of a trend is probably something that's the, one of the issues. Like we try and find a foundation that's just in good science or common sense, eating a lot of whole foods and supplementing where you need to versus trying to find something that's going to be the magic bullet. And it's interesting because in my personal life, I try and do a lot of exploration through biohacking and I try and test a lot of these things on myself and then review those with Shannon. But I think at a baseline of people just, you know, ate well-rounded whole food diet with lots of meats, fruits, veggies, and then supplemented where they need to and exercised a bit, I think the, the country would be in a better place. Uh, I think the problem is... It seems like a lot of Americans uh, try and find the shortcut to to not do that. Or, you know, if they spend too much time in the fast food space or, you know, a lot of people work in cities and, you know, they don't have access to what they might think is an easy whole food diet. So they end up cutting some corners that way or trying to balance out a night of drinking. But yeah, I think I think most of what we do is just try and try and have that foundation of really good foods and uh, supplementation on top of that. Like it always comes back just to healthy eating and exercise is as simple as it gets. This was really interesting to me, Shane, and I, I saw that you guys say that everyone should be on creatine. And as a younger, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I was I was in a phase of a lot of athletics and sports and wanting to bulk up and creatine was my go-to. And the thing I always heard was that you know, I had to drink a lot of water because it puts the water in the muscles and I got to maintain that water. Otherwise, it'll dehydrate my muscles for lack of a better word. But this is really interesting to me. So is this a misunderstood substance and why? Yeah, well, one, I think for a long time, it got put into that box of like creatine is only useful if you're bodybuilding or uh, doing sports that are really power based. Um, more and more research has come out showing that uh, it can be helpful for endurance athletes that creatine supplementation when they've looked at like pro team sports, those that supplement with creatine are injured less. There's some studies showing that, yeah, it can help with hyperhydration and that might bring down inflammatory markers. There are studies 
coming out looking at its impacts on cognitive cognitive health. There are even studies coming out looking at uh, positive benefits of supplementing with creatine if you have depressive symptoms or PTSD. So there, it, it is like a... <laughs> I, I'd like to say creatine's having its moment because more and more research is coming out. There is an established body of li literature on its help with power sports and its safety profile. It's one of the best tested supplements on the market. But relative to the hyperhydration, similar to carbohydrates, creatine is stored with water. But there has, have been a number of studies showing that it doesn't actually dehydrate you and does not lead to muscle cramping. So that is a myth. Shannon, it's interesting that we launched into talk about creatine and we have lots of other things to ask you about, you know, collagen and branch chain amino acids. And when you get down into this world of, you know, these finite little substances that may be in some of the nutrition products that Gnarly Nutrition has produced, how do you focus on, you know, when you're formulating these products, how do you choose? How, do, how have you come to decide what's most important? Yeah, so I always like to say that uh, our product line is pretty basic. There's nothing crazy in it. There's nothing that's going to, you know, that we're selling as the thing that's going to escalate you to, you know, pro athlete status. It's all, they're all products that have a lot of science behind them. Creatine has a lot of science, electrolytes and hydration. Collagen is getting more science as, as we come. It, it's been a bit of a gray area as of late, but there are some pretty solid reasons um, to look at taking it. Protein supplementation, particularly as we age, I would put creatine in that bucket too. You know, everyone 40s and on should should look at making sure they're getting enough protein and, and potentially think about supplementing with creatine to keep on muscle mass or bones stay healthy so we can keep moving into old age. So in the gnarly line, we really look at what the science is supporting and whether or not uh, it makes sense for our customer base, which is active people that love to play in the mountains and and kind of push their boundaries a little bit. I can't wait to go back to what a doctor told us that we who we were interviewing one day. And he said, eating collagen is like a bald person eating hair to hope to grow more hair. And I thought that that was very interesting. Can we return to that in a minute? Because I want to ask John a question. So let's take the example of collagen. John, you as the head of marketing for Gnarly N Nutrition have to look to a certain degree at what's trending out there. And and then you're part of that decision on what what you're going to bring to market and how you're going to get it there. Can you comment on that? Yeah. And I would say from that perspective, um, it wouldn't really be a product focus for me for what to bring to market. Um, we kind of decide as like a leadership group what products we're going to have in our line. And then the fun part about what I get to do is how we bring that to market. So I do find trends not only in the industry, but also for social media where we can enter the market with a product and introduce that to people in a relevant way, because I think that's where we have an opportunity to do that. A lot of what we've been trying to do with our marketing efforts is uh, target our demographic and figure out what kind of marketing will hit with them. Sports nutrition on a whole is extremely saturated. So it's it's really hard to get through to people if you're going to market, you know, a hydration product or a protein or a collagen and have people see that. So for us, it's like, how do, how do we want to show up? And how do we want new customers and our own customers to see our product? And we've decided to 
to use what we find internally pretty funny and then share that humor with the world. So we've targeted our, our past couple of ads are based on 90s movies and TV shows, and we try and find humor in it. So we did a product launch recently with one of our ath- athletes, Dylan Bowman, and we did a skit from the movie Friday. And that's how we brought that product launch to market. And, you know, it's still one of the videos that people comment on on Facebook and Instagram, you know, even months later. For me, I think that's a good way for us to break through a lot of what's out there in sports nutrition and connect with the audience in what's, you know, truly unique. Nobody's doing it right now in sports nutrition. So I think that's a way for us to share our personality, our sense of humor, but also our expertise. I feel like that's our biggest differentiator, you know, having somebody like Shannon at the company to help develop the science and to help bring these products to market the right way is something a lot of these companies don't, they don't have. And um, the ability for us to do it in a unique and a funny way. So John, I want to follow up on that really quick. I was involved in the food industry for a long time and we were in the grocery store product space. I was in it for about 10 years and it's such a competitive market. It's really difficult. And like you said, especially in like nutrition, it's really saturated. And so I'm just curious from a business standpoint, what is, what's your guys' model? Are you, are you direct to consumer is the ultimate goal to get into grocery stores and supplement stores, or are you guys fully going to be focused on, uh, you know, direct to consumer? And then are you rolling out new products on a weekly or a yearly basis? Yeah. So we are very fortunate right now where, um, the bulk of our business is D to C wholesales, a very small focus for us. So we don't have to rely on the ups and downs of grocery stores and C stores right now. You know, there is a plan eventually down the road that we would enter that space. But right now we're very fortunate to sell uh, primarily, I believe it's like 85% D to C through our website. And then the rest is through other brick and mortar wholesalers. And we have some online retailers that we're partnered with like Backcountry, The Feed, um, some really great online retail partners but the, the majority of the business is currently going directly through our website. Love that. So Shannon, I want to ask about the name Gnarly Nutrition, where it came from, and then what what the overall goal is with Narstool Podcast and what you guys plan to discover and accomplish through these conversations you're having. Sure. I mean, Gnarly was just kind of a disruptive name at the time. There was a When Gnarly was founded, there was a gap kind of between products that were had more natural ingredients, were science-based, were third-party tested. So all, all gnarly products are NSF tested uh, for label claim and contaminants and, and banned substances, but then also had a fun culture behind them and really tasted good. So gnarly kind of saw that space and, and jumped into it. And we wanted a, a, a fun, catchy name that, that would carry the brand. Um, and with the Narstool podcast, we are talking to, to people, you know, I think of all different walks of life, like chefs, pro athletes, um, everything from MMA fighters to mountaineers, and really getting into kind of the hurdles and adversity that they've overcome, um, both in terms of walks of life, but also in terms of, uh, you know, athletic hurdles, and how they've dealt with them and how they've made it through. And I think through sharing stories, both funny and serious, um, people can really understand that path. And it's been such a great learning experience for me, uh, just talking to all the guests we've had already. I just listened to your most recent uh, episode, 
with Park City resident Andrew McLean, skier extraordinaire, pretty famous, well-known, famous person around here. And um, it's a really fun conversation. What I love about it is you introduce something, and Shannon, you're always able to, to bring the science behind it. And I just want to bring up something that John talked about that was not very scientific, but then Shannon, you loaded on the science and it was about your love of saunas. And I love this. So the, um, we have a hot tub. I never go in it. My husband goes in it three times a day. If we had a sauna, I would be in there all the time and go from cold plunge into the sauna and back. You love that, John. What do you love about it? And what has Sh Shannon taught you about it in, from a science-based perspective? Um, yeah, I've been in love with the sauna and cold plunge for years. So like my backyard kind of turned into exactly what you're talking about over the years, like what we had the ability to put in there. But right now it's a, it's a sauna, cold plunge, hot tub. Um, I love it for a couple of reasons. The, you know, the older I get, uh, you know, Shannon always laughs at me, but I'm trying to hack into my body's natural production of testosterone. You know, we always talk about at our school, there's, there's shortcuts, right? You can take shortcuts in life and there's consequences to those. But if you're able to hack into like your body's natural ability to do these things, um, that's like, it, it's something that's very cool and it's, it's pretty ancient. Um, so I really like to do hot and cold exposure. I do it in a couple of different ways. I try and do like an hour in the sauna to increase HGH production in the body. And then I just try and do regular sauna usage to try and up my testosterone, um, to try and keep me a little bit more lean, a little bit younger and a little bit healthier as an athlete. Um, and you know, Shannon, <clears throat> I think Shannon's biggest thing is like, we always joke that, you know, I'm the the biohacking optimist and she's kind of the skeptic because there are in in that space I, we, both of us hate using that term biohacking but like human longevity in general there are a lot of trends um I've been willing to try a lot of the nonsense out there and I like Shannon's great like we sit less than five feet away from each other so I can always come in and judgment free or playful judgment she'll tell me like that's completely ridiculous don't try that. Don't do that to yourself or, you know, give it a try and see what happens. Like you might feel nothing, but yeah, I think for most people, um, you know, having access to a sauna, even if you don't have to buy one for your house, like, um, I know that David goes to silver mountain. I see him in the hot tub all the time and the sauna, um, you know, it's great for your cardiovascular system. If you're able to like build up that time, um, Dr. Rhonda Patrick had a lot of like research that was for HDH production, um, which helps with healing and, uh, also for increasing testosterone. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of great benefits for aging athletes, which I think I fall into that category. And, you know, I love to play in the mountains and do stupid things. So I'd love for my body to be able to stay healthy and active as long as possible. You know, I definitely want my heart health to be as at the top of the the scale for that as well. So I can keep playing with my kids for as long as I can. Um, yeah. And just like recovery overall. And I think the, the last piece of that question, I guess, is the, the cold plunge. Um, not, <clears throat> not exactly sure about the science between jumping from hot to cold, but from a baseline doing the cold exposure for me is just kind of like 
knocking out something that's like pretty challenging every day. Um, you know, I wake up 4.30 every morning to go to the gym, go to Silver Mountain at five o'clock. Um, I would walk to the cold plunge before I do that and get in for three minutes and force myself to do something that I really don't want to do every single day. And I feel like mentally, like once I overcome that, I'm like, okay, whatever. I, I can get through whatever this day has to throw at me. And it's like a nice hurdle for that. It also, it feels very good. It sounds counterintuitive. All of us live in this mountain town, but like you feel very alert, alive, awake after that. And not just like falling in cold, but like it is sustained for several hours, almost like a cup of coffee, like a big release of dopamine and endorphins running through your body without the crash that comes along with drinking, you know, a double or a triple shot of espresso. So, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. That's really great. And of course, Gnarly Nutrition is not selling a product, a related product, but I brought up brought it up because this is what you talk about on the Narstool podcast. And so, okay, Shannon, we've just got to follow up with some science uh, behind what John is doing has his testosterone level increased and um and related to that is that cold plunge the whole there's some word that I won't be able to think of right now but it's about the longevity of the like endorphin rush that you get that a cold plunge apparently it, it lasts it's it's the most lengthened sort of endorphin hit that you can get where most of them we get over a couple of seconds. Does that, does that sound familiar? Yeah. So I want to preface this with, you know, my research and training is more in nutrition. And so a lot of my knowledge on these things is, is more on the periphery and, and John and I like to talk about it. Uh, but I'm definitely not an expert in the field. I'd say the most, from what I know, the most convincing research around the benefits of sauna are related to um, reductions in cardio risk of cardiovascular disease. So what John was saying about improvements in heart health, I think there's been some uh, research with blood pressure and, and lipid profiles. Um, and then cold plunge, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, studies around uh, its benefits in terms of recovery, but I think what you're getting at, Lynn, um, there, there's been work showing a significant uh, research in epinephrine and norepinephrine um, and, you know, beyond like an active way to increase adrenaline levels in our body, like cold plunge is probably your best bet to do that. Um, but yeah, as a body of literature, it's it's definitely not something that I'm super familiar with. I recently heard that your body loses about 8% of its muscle mass every decade. And so over the course of time, obviously we get smaller, we get more brittle. And so is, is lifting heavy weights a good way, Shannon, to, to obviously to maintain that muscle mass, but is it a good way to make sure that through the long term, i.e. decades, your body's going to be in better shape than it is versus like a resistance or stretching or yoga or type uh, exercise? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think uh, as long as you're lifting heavy weights correctly, there, you know, there are a lot of people that might jump into lifting um, without guidance on how to properly do it, and it's definitely a recipe for hurting yourself. So, um, while I do think everyone should get, you know, two to three days of heavy lifting 
um, into their weekly exercise program for just that, for stimulating muscle mass, which is uh, good for preventing us from falling, but also um, giving uh, our bones that stimulus to stay strong. Um, I want to also make sure that if you're getting started in a program, you find someone who can help guide you, not just in what to do. And that was Shannon O'Grady and John Perry of Gnarly Nutrition. You can hear the rest of that pre-recorded interview at kpcw.org under the Shows tab and The Mountain Life. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City.